This is David Maggi, Senior Managing Editor of Discourse, an online journal of politics, economics, and culture, published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Welcome to the Discourse Magazine podcast. In this continuing installment of a series on classical liberalism, Ben Klutzi, the Director of Academic Outreach here at Mercatus, sits down with Juliana Schroeder to discuss the psychology underlying how trust and distrust are generated, as well as practical ways to better facilitate productive interactions, even across severe cultural, ideological, and other divides. Dr. Schroeder is a professor in the Management of Organizations Group at the Haas School of Business and a faculty affiliate in the Social Psychology Department, the Cognition Department, and the Center for Human Compatible AI at UC Berkeley. Her research examines the psychological processes underlying how people think about the minds of those around them and how their judgments then influence their decisions and interactions. She's received funding from the National Science Foundation and awards from the Association for Psychological Science and the American Psychological Association. The audio, as well as the transcript of this conversation, has been slightly edited for clarity. Our series is focused on the values that are embedded within a liberal democracy that include toleration, civil discourse, mutual forbearance, pluralism, and the like. We've learned over the past several weeks that we're a more polarized society uh, with a precipitous decline in social and political trust over the past several years. These trends make it difficult to foster a broader commitment towards the values that are within a liberal democracy. And my sense is that uh, psychology can inform our thinking about these trends and perhaps ways in which we might make some marginal improvements towards civil discourse and depolarization. So I'm really glad that we have the chance to talk to a uh, psychologist today. Now, just to kick things off, one of the things that you look at in your research is how people across groups interact and form relationships. Your, Your paper, When Enemies Become Close, studies what happens when you place people from different backgrounds within close proximity, physically and psychologically. Before we get into some of the the details of that work, can you talk about the impetus for for this research project? Sure. Well, thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It's it's great to be here. I completely agree that the psychology, I think, is an important part of some of the questions that you're, you're thinking about. So I'm a social psychologist by training, and this particular project has been going on for 10 years, probably a little more than that now, actually. And it's with an organization called Seeds for Peace, which is one of the largest Middle East coexistence programs in the world right now. And essentially what they do is, um, well, the flagship part of this program, and there's lots of different pieces of it, is that they have a summer camp every single year in which they bring teenagers from these countries that have deeply entrenched kind of historical conflict, such as, you know, in the Middle East, Jewish Israelis and Palestinians, they bring these teenagers over to what's sort of considered a a relatively neutral location, which is in the woods of Maine in the United States. They give them a three-week summer camp experience. So they get to meet people from sort of the other side of their conflict. And many of these teenagers have never engaged with people from the other side of the conflict before. Or if they have, it's, you know, just been within really contentious circumstances, like meeting a soldier at a checkpoint. And so they're kind of thrown into this experience and they have these three weeks to get to know each other and to kind of talk about the conflict and to digest it. And they come out like completely transformed. 
And so, you know, as a psychologist, like thinking about the mechanisms by which this happens. So, you know, these, these people come in, they have you know, deep, deep conflict with one another. And then by the end, they're actually forming relationships with people from the other side. Some of them become friends. There's even like budding romances that happen. And then what happens when they then go back to their respective countries after having had this kind of almost surreal three-week experience, and then they have to reintegrate kind of into their their country with their peers and their family, and how do they kind of talk about those experiences and digest them psychologically? And so, you know, it just brings up so many fascinating questions to think about. And so there's sort of a lot we pursued. In one of the initial papers that we published where we were doing research with this camp, we looked at the extent to which attitudes changed over the course of the camp, um, including when they went back to their countries. And we found that basically, you know, participants come in and their whole goal is basically to explain to the other side why they're wrong. You know, so they, they basically are, are feeling very, very negatively towards the other side. There's a lot of what we call dehumanization, which is thinking of the other side of the conflict as being, you know, completely mindless and just being completely wrong about everything. And and so the, the first week of the camp is basically them telling the other side about how they're wrong. And then it, it's not until the second week that they start listening to one another. There's sort of this process that they go through. And then by the third week, they're actually like forming these relationships and actually starting to change their attitudes and their beliefs. And by the end of the camp, what you see is this like huge change in their attitudes from starting super negative to basically getting to like midpoint or higher on the scales that we use. And then there's some regression when they go back to their you know respective countries. And the, but the interesting thing psychologically is, can we predict how the attitudes maintain and which which campers are maintaining positive attitudes and how they're doing that. And so one of the kind of key things that we found in, in an early paper was that the relationships that the campers ended up forming were very predictive of how their attitude trajectory looked over the next you know year after their experience. Um, and in particular, if they were able to create what they considered a close friend with someone from the other side of the conflict and then maintain that and keep that, which is challenging, over the course of a year, those were the campers that we saw sort of the least reduction in attitudes. So they were able to kind of maintain their attitude change um, over the course of that year. Very interesting. You said a, a number of things there that we're going to try to unpack through the, the conversation. But in, in your research, and I guess a thrust of, of your finding is that if you put people from different backgrounds uh, together within you know close proximity they have you know the, the tendency to form relationships what are the mechanisms there how, how does this happen yes it's a good question so the the follow-up paper that we wrote was really looking more about that like how do those relationships actually form in the camp and so there's these two key mechanisms that a lot of prior research has looked at one of which is is homophily which is essentially that the phrase that people use is birds of a feather flock together, that basically people form relationships with those who are similar to them in some way. And particularly when there's like a line of stark ideological difference, people are going to try to form relationships with those who are more ideologically similar to them. Right. So in the context of this camp, it means that probably same gender pairs are going to be more likely to form kids of more of the same age, but in particular kids that are coming from the same geographic regions that have are coming from the same nationalities. 
And then the other is that's homophily. And then the other one, as you mentioned, Ben, is, is propinquity, which is essentially proximity in physical space. And so, you know, the, the work on this has shown that people that get randomly assigned to be roommates in college are more likely to end up becoming friends than people who are across the hall from each other. Uh, you know, and of course, sometimes those things backfire, right? You can imagine that being randomly assigned to be a roommate with someone that yeah. you <laughs> might end up backfiring. And actually, that was kind of the question that we did look at in that paper, which is how do these things interact? How does homophily and propinquity interact in this context of, of extreme conflict? And there's kind of like three different hypotheses that you could have about that, which we kind of explicate in the paper. So one is that it would backfire. So this is kind of the amplification hypothesis, which is that homophily becomes worse when people are in tight proximity to one another, which is that, you know, putting people who have you know, strong disagreement or strong divides and differences into a space together and forcing them to do 90 minute dialogue groups every single day, which is what they do in this camp, <laughs> would then lead to outgroup members, which so the outgroup is just what we call people from these different groups, these different sides of the conflict, being less likely to form a friendship. But then another hypothesis you could have is that there would be like mitigation of homophily, which is that putting people into close proximity who are different will actually then lead them to be more likely to engage with those who are different in a way that they wouldn't have necessarily done so otherwise. It kind of creates this impetus to actually force them to engage with one another in a way that could end up leading to relationships and friendships being formed. And then the third is just, of course, that there's sort of no interaction between the variables at all. So it doesn't you know, really matter whether or not people are in close proximity or not. They're just going to always kind of show the same level of homophily. And what we find is evidence for the mitigation hypothesis that that when you put people into close proximity, they're more likely to connect with an outgroup member, someone who's different from them, than they would with an in-group member. So actually, um, what we found in the paper was that so two in-group participants, so these are from the same nationality, they were four times more likely to become close if they were in like closer proximity with one another. But for two outgroup participants, so like a Jewish Israeli and a Palestinian, they were 12 times more likely to become close, put into closer proximity. So it has a much bigger impact on them. And basically, we theorize that it's because they, they never would have connected otherwise, right? So if they're not like really forced to be in, in proximity with one another, engaging with one another in kind of intimate ways, they're just not naturally going to do that. They have no reason to want to do that or to engage at all. So you kind of need that kind of structural nudge to get them to, to form a relationship. Does the facilitation play a role? I imagine that there is a mediator who is skilled and, and trained in sort of bringing people together. And, and so that perhaps plays a role. Absolutely. No, I, I absolutely think that is true. And, and we, we think a lot about that. So so Seeds of Peace is really good at doing this. They created kind of these, what we would call ideal circumstances to promote intergroup trust. These come from like Gordon Alport's four requirements of intergroup contact. And those requirements are that it, it needs to have equal status between the groups. There needs to be some form of cooperation. Sometimes that's considered like a subordinate goal that exists that there, there needs to be some set of common values or goals that are introduced. And then there needs to be like clear support 
from the authorities base. And so those things are hard to satisfy. You know, it's not always possible, right? So groups like Jewish Israelis and Palestinians, where there's, you know, deep perpetuated feelings of like inequality between those groups, and one of them potentially has sort of more resources than the other, it's, it's hard to make them feel sort of equal status. But the way that the camp is set up is to, to try to satisfy each of those conditions as much as possible. And we think of it like a way to summarize it is that the, the interaction should be structured and meaningful. So it needs to, to have meaning to both of the groups in a way to get them to engage. And I think it's absolutely probably the case, Ben, that, that you know, without some of these elements, it could actually sort of backfire, right? So then mm-hmm. you might get something very different. So you do need right. to really think carefully about the way in which the proximity is structured that it would create the relationships between the outgroup members. Right. And they're aware coming in to the, the goal of this is to bring them together, foster interaction and things like that. Well, there's the question of um, selection into camp. So who's selected to go to this camp and what does that mean right. about the results? And that's a, mm-hmm. that's a whole other like can of worms. Um, mm-hmm. But I can tell you, yeah, we've thought about this quite a bit, that the campers are essentially selected on two criteria. One is their ability to speak English. And so that's really important because if they can't communicate in the same language, you're kind of doomed, right? So there's that. So they have common ground in that sense. And then the other thing is that they're selected based on their leadership potential. Because the model of this camp, the whole idea of the seeds, is that they they leave the camp and become these like seeds going out into the world to kind of spread the message and become leaders in their communities. And then they kind of transform kind of the topography of the conflict in kind of these myriad ways which we're actually kind of looking at the spread of their attitudes right now empirically, which is interesting. So that those are the reasons, those are the ways that they're selected into the camp. Of course, it is tends to be more the case that that these are kids whose parents are somewhat more liberal, at least they're kind of open to this idea. Although again, when we ask them at the preset before they even get to camp, you know, what are their reasons for being there? Why are they going? The kids are not saying things like, oh, I want to get to know the other side, or I want to like, they're saying like, I'm there to express to them why they're wrong. <laughs> and so I think that, that helps to alleviate some of the most like pressing concerns, which would be that you know only kids are coming to this camp that are already, you know, ready to form relationships without group members. And so that's particularly why we see these results. And so I think it's a, a bit more generalizable than that. They're really coming just based on, you know, their leadership abilities. And so it's kind of a, a relatively random subset in that sense. Yeah. Now, you know, bringing this into the U.S. context, where it seems as though there's a lot of sorting going on, people are living in live in geographic areas with similar people with the same mindsets and, and backgrounds yeah. uh, and also, you know, placing themselves in the same echo chambers, you know, virtually online and, and so on. And, and so it, it seems like something like this could be helpful in fostering, you know, discourse. And I, I wonder if some of the work that groups like Braver Angels and Living Room Conversations are, are, are doing to name just a few would be instrumental. I'm basically thinking whether this work that you've done is scalable within the U.S. Yeah, it's such a great question. Well, so I mentioned Gordon Alport and his four necessary conditions that that entire theory is called intergroup contact theory. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of these organizations that you like living room conversations is one of the ones that I know that you mentioned, they are based on essentially intergroup contact theory, which is that 
you know, people that have disagreement, what you want to do is you want to get them to engage with one another, to interact with one another. They have to connect in some way. And that's sort of the first step to reducing the conflict and starting to kind of solve it and overcome it. But then the question so on average, the research has really shown that over and over. There have been meta-analyses of thousands of thousands of studies across lots of different contexts. Now, the different necessary conditions matter. So having those are important. But just creating contact with someone from the other group has been shown to reliably lead to more openness and attitudes, less feelings of conflict, and so on. Now, like some of the mechanisms in the way these things are run are like very interesting to think through. One that we've been investigating is the the medium of communication by which the interaction happens and how that can influence the, the outcomes of the interaction among people that disagree with one another. And in particular, the finding that kind of comes out of that work is that having a spoken conversation. It can involve the video. It doesn't have to involve video, but it needs to involve speech as compared to, let's say, a written conversation is really important for creating humanization in the sense that each of the individuals who are participating in the conversation feel by the end of the conversation that the other one is a thinking, feeling human, and they kind of actually have deep understanding of the other person's opinions, and they actually report more openness to the other person's opinions. And so we think, you know, we actually have a whole theory on what we call like the humanizing voice, that speech is a very kind of humanizing medium. Or another way to think about it is that text is a dehumanizing medium. <laughs> so taking that into account as these types of interventions are being designed is a really smart idea. And I'm happy to kind of get into any of the details about the psychology behind why we think that is. Yeah, I mean, that's a perfect segue to my my next question, sort of related to the dehumanization concept that you mentioned earlier, because you know this in your in your research as well, that for most of human history, we've only communicated in person. And in just the past 50 years, we've started communicating online. And, you know, in your article, Two Social Lives, you talked about this quite a bit. Now, reading versus hearing an opinion isn't the same. And, you know, you touch on some of the nonverbal cues that are lacking in text-based communication that might affect how we interpret text-based communication. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I've just become really fascinated lately in how the the structure of a conversation changes the outcomes and the, the impressions that people form of one another. And I also, you mentioned very briefly, like, you know, dehumanization is a very like loaded term. And there's a lot of research I've kind of done around that construct and, and what it means. But I'll just like say very briefly that in this case, we basically operationalize it as perceptions of the other person's mental capacities. So their capacity to have cognitive rational thought and also their capacity to have warmth and emotional to basically feel emotions and those are markers of perceived humanness that we see sort of over and over again in the research and so that's kind of one of the outcomes that we look at here but in terms of the going back to your question about the structure of of conversation so we basically think there are three different means by which communication changes when it's verbal versus when it's written and one, one important piece is on the consumption side. So how the message is consumed differently. And you can imagine, like we run experiments where we keep the words, like the semantic content, exactly the same. So you would say, hi, I'm Ben, nice to meet you. <laughs> or I would just see those words, mm-hmm. right? And so the words are the same, but 
the message is interpreted differently, right? Because of what we call the paralinguistic cues. And so those are all the nonverbal cues in terms of how you're saying the message. And you can imagine visual cues could be part of this as well. So if you say, nice to meet you in sort of an aggressive or sarcastic way versus you say, nice to meet you in like a friendly way, you know, that will be interpreted quite differently. So there's the tone of voice, there's the pace of your speech, there's your your volume um, in the voice, and then there's facial cues as well that could play into this. And so there's a lot more richness in the message when we can hear it or when we can see it than when we read it. And so that changes a lot. But then there's also the, so that's kind of the consumption side, there's the construction of the message. So if I know I'm going to be speaking with someone versus I think I'm going to be writing with them, I'm actually going to phrase my message differently. (laughs) And in particular, speaking tends to be more, you know, spontaneous, it's off the cuff, I might not be the most articulate when I speak. With writing, I might be much more formal, Uh, I might, you know, polish, I might edit my speech quite a bit also happens a lot more slowly, right? Because I take all that time to work on the message. And then the third, uh, and so the third kind of stream, the way in which these things are different is the exchange of the information. And so there you can think about speaking is highly synchronous in the sense that I will say something and then you can immediately respond or you can argue with me, you can interrupt. (laughs) You can give me cues of responsiveness, which is what you're doing right now when you're saying, right, yeah, uh uh-huh, which indicates that, you know, you get it. And and those cues can also be negatives. You can say, what? And so you can have these, yeah, these kind of brief interjections that give me these insights into how you're reacting to the message that I'm, I'm giving to you. Um, and those things happen via writing as well. So, so of course, someone can interject and there are, you know, emojis they can send and emoticons. You can indicate your short reactions via writing as well, but they happen far less in writing. So it's um, about eight times more common for these responsiveness cues to show up in, in speech than it is in text. And of course, the synchronicity levels are completely different. So across those like three different mechanisms what we find kind of over and over again is that basically on on every level, speaking is a more humanizing medium than writing. So it has the paralinguistics, which adds the richness. And that that seems to be you know quite important. Like we've literally shown that if you have, um, let's take like an, a person making a pitch about why they should be hired for a job, just because it's, you know, easy to think about perceptions of competence in that space. If they make the if they make the pitch to the employer and the person hears it, Versus if they write a pitch to the employer or if you take a transcript so you keep the content the same, the employer thinks of them as being more intellectually capable and more competent if they can hear it compared to if they read it. So those nonverbal cues, you know, alone have a lot to do with it. Being in the spoken medium makes people feel more comfortable with expressing their true opinions and their true feelings. And they're going to be, you know, more spontaneous in what they say. So there's there's deeper level understanding that occurs there. And then the synchronicity is really important. So we've actually found in some studies now that if you take a spoken conversation, but make it asynchronous, kind of more like what a written conversation is. And the way that you could do this is you could have people sending each other voice messages. So I send you a message, Ben, and then you listen to it and then you send me one back. So we're like, we're communicating via speech, I suppose. It's now like asynchronous. Then uh, in that circumstance, actually, we see like similar effects as if they were just writing to one another. So it kind of like returns off a lot of the benefits of speaking. And um, so the synchronicity yeah. is really important as well. 
Yeah. And it's interesting. I've heard from a number of people who interact a lot more on Twitter or on other social media platforms. And I've indicated that where, you know, they haven't met the people they're interacting with, the interactions can be very, very aggressive until they actually meet in person and, and they talk, you know, now with all the, the cues, things are toned down substantially, which certainly attests to what you're talking about. Yeah, whenever I do this research, I think about the implications for social media and how a lot of social media platforms, although not all because it's changing and, and conversation mm -hmm. is updating and platforms are updating in really fascinating ways, but a lot of them are, are via text. In fact, it's funny because sometimes when I present this research to like older audiences, I have to make the case that people write to each other. You know, they're like, wait, what does it even mean to have like, you know, people actually go online and they have like full conversations where they write to one another now. <laughs> So they're like, this research question makes no sense. But it does, because that is the way a lot of people are having, you know, communication these days. And in fact, I saw some statistics recently saying that, like, younger generations are communicating more with other people via writing than they are via speaking. <laughs> so, you know, it's certainly concerning. And then you have other things going on in social media as well, the way that a lot of these platforms are set up. And there's been other really important research that's been done on on problematic ways in which the platforms are set up that that actually exacerbate conflict and, and misinformation as well, as opposed to reducing it. So one thing is, you know, there's a presence of an audience, right? So if I'm if I'm writing to you, responding to you, Ben, I might not be really trying to appeal to you or understand you. My goal might be to like simply appeal to my base and like get a lot of likes from my supporters, you know, and so it becomes, you know, competitive in that way. And people have to think about the audience. The like button in and of itself has been shown to be really problematic for civil discourse, which is mm -hmm. kind of funny. But you know, it changes the goals again, right? So I'm not like interacting with you just to understand and get to know you. It's like I'm interacting with you to get likes <laughs> in a way that can be really problematic in, in terms of you know debate or when we have differences of opinions. And then as you noted, of course, it's there's a lot of anonymity. Right? So you might not really know anything about the person that you're engaging with. And there's sort of no barriers to anyone posting, you know, almost anything that they want on all these platforms. I guess some of that's updating, but you know, and so that creates issues too. And I guess when the when the issue is also polarizing, you want to pick the right venue. I'm thinking about the research that you did in your paper, The Humanizing Voice, where you did some experiments looking at polarizing issues, where you first videotaped people explaining their attitude on uh, polarizing matter, and you asked evaluators to watch, listen to, or read the, the transcripts. And I imagine that you, you found that there were sort of three different perceptions in how they interacted with that, with that information. Yeah, well, it turns out the video and the audio, you don't get different perceptions for those. So the addition of the video or not, and this has been something that has been a little bit surprising and people sometimes find this interesting, just that the visual cues don't seem to matter very much. In fact, we've had experiments where we have like a subtitled video. So you can like see the person, the communicator, you know, speaking, but you can't hear them. You just read what they have to say with the subtitles compared to just reading it. So with no video and you might expect that like seeing the video would be like somewhat humanizing. Uh, it's not. It doesn't really do anything. But then if you hear them, so if you add the voice in, that makes like a huge difference. So it's really the voice that seems to be the humanizing element there. The video doesn't really seem to do that much. Yeah. And I think you can you can see that entrepreneurs are innovating to overcome some of these challenges. Platforms like Clubhouse 
are emerging. It's primarily voice-based. There's no text involved. People mm -hmm. get on and they have conversations. It's almost like a, a conference call. And at least from what I've experienced with Clubhouse so far, the interactions are quite civil, generally. But I, I don't know. It, it's very early stage. I'm glad you haven't experienced any bad interactions on Clubhouse yet. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, but I imagine there are some, right? Yeah, actually, many, many people have been asking me about Clubhouse and what does the research sort of say about Clubhouse? It's, I find it a really fascinating platform. So it, I think it is, right? It's much more humanizing. It's more synchronous. You can get into a lot more depth than kind of what, what's covered than something like Twitter. You're not really going to get into that level of depth in any sort of written platform, it does bring up some new questions that are potentially concerning, like who gets a voice and who doesn't and who gets into the room. They have this kind of they create exclusivity by capping the size of the rooms, things like that. But um, I, I think it's a step in the right direction if the goal is to promote better understanding and more civil discourse. And that's a big if because that's not necessarily everyone's goal. Right. Yep, that's right. I wanted to highlight the positive aspects of the new technologies that have emerged to help us interact and, and stay connected. In addition to fostering networks of friends, advancing collaboration and so on, you share a, a finding in, in your article, Two Social Lives, that patients who text messaged during surgery felt more socially supported and, and required less pain medication than patients who did not. Mm -hmm. uh, that seemed to me like a very strong insight. And, you know, when it comes to, you know, deepening connections through platforms and technologies that help us interact, are we underrating them or overrating them? Ooh, that, that's a good question. Um, so let me tell you about that paper. It came out of Jeff Hancock's lab. He's over at Stanford. He's actually very involved in the Psychology of Technology Institute that I direct. And I love the finding as well. I've actually talked to him about it. I was like, why didn't you have them hop on a phone call like with their mother or their friend? He was like, Juliana, that just like was not feasible in this situation, right? So the text message is the best thing that we can do in this type of situation. So I'm thinking like a scientist, not like an actual human who had to think about what it would be like to actually be in that situation. But yeah, it fits with like a, a whole broad set of findings that, you know, even sort of minimal means of, of social support can really be powerful. There's Jim Cohen has work where he looked at people who had uh, cancer or going through other you know, really serious diseases in the hospital and their outcome, their trajectory of outcomes when they were being, you know, consistently visited by a close friend or, or relationship partner or not. And even just looking at minimal things like whether or not they held hands with the person. So you have one experiment where you held hands with a close relationship partner while you're getting, you know, negative news or you hold hands with a stranger or you don't hold hands with anyone and just seeing how people sort of coped with it and you know and their their experience and even their sort of physical experience and you see like big differences emerging between the conditions so holding hands with a close relationship partner while you're having to undergo something like physically painful or stressful or, or something emotionally stressful now makes the difference. And I think of the text messaging as this kind of like, you know, another way of creating this, this support. You're right. It highlights sort of the how even sort of these minimal forms of technology, I think, I think can be powerful. And even going back to your point about scalability, which I kind of glossed over, I don't even know if I answered that question. <laughs> you know, video technology is more scalable than in person. And we're seeing good results that actually a video conversation or even just a voice conversation can have a lot of the same outcomes as an in-person conversation in terms of humanization and impressions that people form of each other and, and understanding and, and conflict. 
it's really the writing that's the problem. But like, it's also interesting to compare writing to doing nothing, right? So it all depends on what the, the comparison condition is. And so, you know, you could ask, like, in your studies, you've been showing that spoken conversation leads to these better outcomes than written conversation. But what about nothing? <laughs> what about written conversation compared to nothing at all? And there I would say, like, yeah, it's actually fairly promising. Like, we find that in our studies that on average, people's attitudes move in the direction of their partner, like in the spoken conversation, like a half a point on a one to 10 scale over a 15 minute conversation. And we've looked at all sorts of different divisive issues is mostly among college students, you know, but there are sort of pros and cons to using college students sample, but they can be passionate about issues and have like a lot of, you know, disagreement. And so I think it's promising that they're moving. And so that's a half a point for the spoken conversation. But what about the rain conversation? It's like 0.1, but it's positive. So it's like, you know, it's better than nothing. <laughs> and so even there, you know, we actually do see sort of movement that you could think of as being encouraging. So even there, you would think writing conversation is better than nothing. And then seeing these results, like Jeff Hancock's result about text messaging, making people feel more socially supported when they're undergoing surgery. I think that's that's promising as well. I guess, you know, I think technology in general has the power to be extremely beneficial for us. It's just a matter of sort of leveraging it in the right way and really thinking carefully through the the psychological mechanisms and what are the consequences of these different technologies. So you can have a communication platform that's built in a way that'll be more effective for promoting understanding and one that might be, you know, less effective. Right. And, and, you know, as we can all observe, we're going through a, a pandemic and I try to think about what it must have felt like in say 1918 during that pandemic versus now, because having the, the tools to interact and have conversations, you know, it was difficult when we couldn't attend funerals of loved ones in person, hold them, hug them, but we could see them on Zoom or some other platform. It's not a perfect substitute, but in terms of marginal improvements, it's better. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, it's it's been life changing to have technology during the pandemic. And it's funny how quickly people, you know, complain where like, oh, are we getting video interference? It's like you're talking via video to someone who's millions of miles away. That's like incredible. But I think there, you know, this actually gets into the work I've been doing with the Psychology of Technology Institute, where we basically look at the conversation happening in the world about how technology is changing so many aspects of the human experience. And there's, you see people that are kind of like, the, they have the utopian view, which is that, okay, technology is going to like fix everything in the world and it has, you know, such incredible potential. And then you've got the people that have the dystopian view, which is that, technology is like really hurting us. I don't know if you've watched The Social Dilemma, but that really exemplifies the dystopian view of like we're being, we're addicted to technology. It doesn't have our best interests in mind. It's really harming the human experience. And, you know, suicide rates have gone up. And the Generation I, so Jean Twenge's, or I think she calls it Generation Me, is like narcissism is on the rise. And so like you can think about all these different societal problems that people point to you know, technology and social media. And so the Psych of Tech Institute, you know, basically our platform is that we need to be objective and be evidence-based. And there's sort of a middle ground here between these extremes. And the really the big problem is that there's too big of a gap between when technologies emerge and become deeply entrenched in society and when we really understand and know well 
what are the psychological consequences of those technologies? I mean, Facebook is a great example. It came out, you know, 2004. It was already pretty quickly entrenched in society. And then, you know, 10 years later, we're starting to see these research studies. I'm like, oh, like it turns out <laughs> that, you know, misinformation spreads really quickly on this platform or that like the like button did these things. And it was very post hoc, you know, we're very, re- scientists were very, very reactive and slow. And I think that gap between when a technology comes out and when we know about it needs to be much, much shorter. <laughs> and it's interesting. I mean, I think innovation does this too, where something is created, there are challenges, and then new innovation is generated out of that to address those challenges. I mean, with misinformation, now I've seen a number of platforms emerge as a result of of this, right? There's something called flip side and there's something called the factual. And you know, they're trying to present the different different perspectives out there that are legitimate and um, they try to rank the level of accuracy and, and, and things like that. So it's interesting to see how all these things evolve over time. Yeah. Allsides.org is another one that's pretty good. I'll have to check that right. one out. Right. Right. No, it, it is interesting. Yeah, I hope it kind of continues to be informed by the research and the science. I think there's more room for scientists to kind of have a converse, a seat at the table in terms of, you know, being part of the conversation, I think. A lot of things are not super evidence-based. <laughs> it's the understatement of the year. <laughs> so um, I wanted to get into your work on rituals a little bit. It's quite fascinating. And I'm, I'm thinking of your paper, When Alterations Are Violations from 2020. It seems to me that you know we're in a national moment where we're creating new rituals and altering existing ones, which I guess generates the, the notions of violations, You know, whether it's taking the knee when the national anthem is being sung or expressing outrage over something that would previously not be considered an, an issue. Are we seeing an evolution of rituals or this is just no different from previous eras? No, we, we absolutely are seeing an evolution of rituals. I mean, in a way, rituals are always evolving and changing, but the the fact that we have been in the pandemic has caused the changes to be a lot more stark. And I think people have been a lot more creative in the way that they're they're starting to think about rituals I guess I can just take a little step back and say that, you know, I've been studying rituals for a long time. So I see everything in the world as being a ritual in a way, the way that we define it formally is that so some people when they think of ritual, they think of, oh, okay, you're talking about like Catholic mass, you know, a very religious, like extremely elaborate. I'm like, no, no, rituals are things you do all the time. Like you drink your morning coffee in a particular way. That's a ritual, (laughs) right? You're actually like engaging in rituals all of the time. But yeah, so it has these two kind of elements. So it's a sequence of behaviors that someone engages in. And there's the physical elements, which is that it tends to be characterized by rigidity, repetition, formality sometimes. So going back to the coffee example, you know, is there a particular way in which you always get the coffee? There are different levels of ritualism. So if you always have to hold it with, you know, the right hand in a particular way, that's going to be a little more ritualistic. But even just, you know, a single thing, like just getting it done in the same way every morning, that would be enough to satisfy sort of the physical requirements. And then there has to be some sort of psychological element as well, which is that it has some sort of like meaning to you. And this is how we distinguish a habit from a ritual. So, for example, there are things that you might engage in every day, but they don't really have much meaning. They're just habits. And so if they if you were to change them, so maybe the way you brush your teeth in the morning, you know, if you were to change that in a a way you did it a different way, it wouldn't really bother you that much. It's okay. But if it bothers you, (laughs) 
Then you've got, now it's more of a ritual, right? It has some meaning attached to it. And it might not even be really explicit in your mind. You might not be like, I don't really think of this coffee as symbolizing anything. But at the same time, it sort of sets me up for my morning work and it kind of gets me going. And that those things are, they're subtle, but those are like symbolic elements. So it does have some meaning to you. And so then we would call that a ritual. And so people's rituals are being really altered quite a bit these days just because of circumstances. And that paper that you mentioned, the Altering Rituals paper, that one actually looks at group rituals. So those are things that do tend to be you know, more ingrained and they kind of explicitly codify and represent the group's values. So you can think of them as both being secular and religious. The Pledge of Allegiance to the flag, that's, you know, a ritual, kneeling, right, for the anthem, that's that's a ritual, putting your hand over your heart when you sing the anthem, the uh, 21 gun salute for funerals. Handshakes, is, is that a ritual? <laughs> a handshake is a ritual, yes, that's a greeting ritual, uh, very different, it's not really, I mean, I guess it is at the group level in a way, so it's done at the dyad level, right, so you're doing it with one other person, but it, it counts as a ritual because you, you know, put out your hand, you touch hands, you move them up and down. So it's got these like physical elements to qualify as a handshake. But then it also has some sort of meaning, which is that it indicates that you trust the other person or that you're you know willing to be open to them. But we're not doing that anymore these days. Yeah, I actually have an entire paper on handshaking, which might be the reason you brought that up. <laughs> Literally spent like a big chunk of my life just studying handshakes. <laughs> what we find in that paper is that handshaking has, you know, cooperative value for these situations in which we call them mixed motive situations where you don't quite know if the other person wants to cooperate with you or compete with you like it's a stranger. A lot of times we looked at like negotiation contexts. So you're about to start a negotiation with someone. And then what we find is that, you know, the person that proffers their hand, they're sending this like pretty strong signal right at the very start of the interaction that they're willing to cooperate, that they're you know, willing to be to be open. And then the other person then shaking that hand, that sort of cements that signal. And so the pairs that, you know, we have experiments where we take pairs and we randomly assign them to shake hands or not. And then the pairs that shake hands actually have more cooperative outcomes where they, in integrative negotiations, they can create more value together than the pairs that don't shake hands, even though this was just like totally randomly assigned. But yeah, we're not engaging in handshaking anymore. Seen a lot of articles coming out about, you know, the, the end of handshaking and what that means. You know, it's one of many different rituals that I think are these like subtle things that we do socially to kind of set up a positive social environment that, you know, ways to create trust among strangers and they're, you know, they're subtle or convey, you know, good intentions or friendliness, right? And so those things are, are needing to adapt. We're in a weird in-between state now where people don't really know how to, to greet each other. I've seen like the elbow taps, right? So how does it evolve? And so... There's the foot it, tap also. Oh, I've never done that one. I'll have to, I'll have to try that. <laughs> Good to know. And so the research, I think, would suggest that they're going to need to have these elements. Like there have to be... So they have to be codified, with some sort of symbolism. And that might be easy because then it can adapt the symbolism of the handshake. So if it is the elbow tap, you know, now people understand that sort of represents a similar thing that a handshake represented. And then it needs to be something that is, you know, a clearly, and, and it's even more important when there's two parties engaging it, 
the actions need to be clear. So what needs to be done? Like how, where do you put your elbow and how far up does it go? There has to be coordination. So much confusion of of late. (laughs) Like, you know, you're trying to give someone a fist bump and they come with your elbow and it's, it's very confusing. Right. And that's like having a, a ritual that fails between two people is like a bad, a really bad experience. It's actually worse than not right. doing it at all. We found right. in our research. And so it's going to need to have those elements. And then it needs to become normative, which is like lots of people need to be doing it. But I actually do not think that handshakes are gone forever. I think they might come back because it's so intuitive and humans have been doing it for so long. In the broader context of fostering civility and toleration, and all the the values that we we appreciate within a liberal democracy, do you think there are some rituals that we can develop to enhance these values? Yeah, it's interesting. There have been studies that show that pairs that are about to engage in a negotiation with one another, they don't know each other. If they have some time in the beginning to, you know, exchange information in kind of a structured way, like talk a little bit about their family and other things that actually leads them to then feel more liking for one another and have better outcomes in the negotiation. And so you can think of it as an icebreaker, but it's more than that, right? Because it's in a way, it's a bit of a ritual there that they're, it's like a civility ritual, right? So it's like, let's be civil to one another before we... (laughs) you know, engage in the conflict. (laughs) I don't know what those, you know, could look like, but it'd be interesting to like think about having like, you know, clearer civility rituals at the start of some of these, you know, conversations. You can imagine in the Senate, they do something before they get into the, (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, I haven't haven't tested anything in that space, but that would be really fun to think about. You know, I've talked to some guests in the past who've, you know, Robert Talese, for instance, and, you know, Danielle Allen as well. And, and, you know, they've talked about fostering some kind of a civic friendship around the country, civic friendships around the country. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Robert Talese talks about is that we do things with other people that have nothing to do with politics. In fact, you will not be able to determine what someone's politics is because we're so polarized along political lines and politics is saturated every aspect of our of our lives. And so, you know, if we can get back to that, where we're talking to people and engaging in certain activities, we would be better off, perhaps. But we have to first recognize, as he says, that we ourselves have been subject to polarization, maybe in ways that we have not been aware of, right? Mm-hmm. And so we have to begin to think about people with different views differently. So it's in that spirit that I ask that question, because I think that we could use some insights to help us move things forward a little bit. Yeah, I love that anecdote. I think that's really important. This even just there's, you know, work in in the field of psychology on like coordination with sharing food together and how that actually can lead to cooperation. So you can imagine even having a conversation over like a shared meal. Now, this is going to be, you know, post-vaccine, (laughs) post-COVID. But the conversation in that particular context would be very different from, you know, a conversation in another context. And so really thinking carefully through the way in which the meeting starts, whether there are rituals that can promote, you know, shared understanding or set norms for the conversation moving forward. I think just norm setting in general. So having expectations of civility and so on makes a huge difference. And there's been some interesting research on how those, whether those norms are more or less salient on different platforms leads to very different outcomes um, in terms of the conversations that happen on the different platforms. (laughs) So setting those norms and then then thinking about the way the conversation is structured and whether there's, you know, shared experiences that are happening, like the sharing of the food and other things. We sort of plot out what sort of an ideal space 
would look like for a conversation in which two people disagree to kind of produce the the best outcomes. Interesting. Yeah. Food for thought. Food for thought. Exactly. Now, so we're nearing the end here. And the question that I have asked pretty much every every guest that we've had on this series is about optimism. So are you optimistic about the nature of our civil discourse and our ability to overcome some of the deep divisions we're experiencing? I am cautiously optimistic. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the trends for the last 50 years um, in terms of the levels of polarization and, and just general feelings of opposition and antagonism against against the other side, they don't look good. You know, those trends are not going in the right direction. But I think, you know, that that if we really are, you know, paying attention to the research, and I think there's a lot of potential to turn things around. And I'm optimistic about that. Absolutely. Yeah. Wonderful. Wonderful. So far, we've had one pessimist. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm and you've had a lot of optimists. Is that what that means? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mostly cautiously optimistic. Um, right. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants but, to make the strong prediction. <laughs> no, 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 no. But I, but I, I still think that's a that's a very good good sign. If the experts are telling us that they're they're optimistic, then I think that's a good thing. Right. It's like optimistic under the conditions that you listen to the experts. Right. <laughs> right. Right. right <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Well, Professor Schroeder, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. I really appreciate it. It was so great. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.